The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod, and we're coming to you from the Warner Center in Woodland Hills, California, on this fabulous Monday morning. So thrilled to be here with you. We're going to be here for the next hour talking about autism from a 360-degree perspective. So wherever you're coming into this big, beautiful spectrum, I do, I think of it as a ball, you know, um, that there are all kinds of points on the ball. Um, it's not flat, it's, it's 3D, and there are all kinds of places where you might have come into this circle, the larger autism community. We welcome all of you, starting with individuals who are on the autism spectrum themselves, of course, right? But then additionally, we welcome everybody who cares about them. That's parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, brothers, sisters, all of those people. We welcome all of you uh, because together we want to help to to make good things happen for individuals who are on the autism spectrum right we can disagree about everything else <laughs> everything else but we agree on that uh, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna be here live but Traven's gonna show you some of the different ways that you can connect with us here during this next hour uh, including our homepage which is autism live.com when you go there there's so many different things to do I want to tell you that you can search our live our vast library of videos we've had so many guests over the years talking about so many different topics on our mission to provide information and inspiration so so tootle around, find the best way. We tried to make it searchable in as many ways as possible. See if you can find your videos. And you know what? If you can't, let us know. Because that's really what we want to know is make our videos searchable for you. So let us know if you're having trouble finding a topic or a, you know, a, a certain guest. And we'll take a look at it. Because you know it's a bunch of links that have to connect things together. And we'll, we'll relink if we need to, right? Uh, the other thing I want to let you know is that, as Traven is showing, there's so many different ways to write in your questions and your comments. We do have a live feature on that autism-live.com. It's at the bottom of the page, and you it says um, chat, and you click, I had to think what the word was, right? You click chat, and you open it up, and it's kind of a misnomer because we don't really get to chat back and forth on that forum. But if you click chat and open it up, you uh, type something in and it shows up here on my screens. You and I can be having a conversation. And when we have an expert, whew, then you can be having a conversation with the expert. I love it because it's totally free. It takes a couple of minutes for it to, you know, leave your house, bounce the satellite and come back down and find us. But it's almost immediate, right? Which, and I love the immediate gratification of that. And it's totally free and it's totally anonymous. But you can write into us in any of the other ways that Traven was showing you on YouTube or Facebook. Or there is my email right there for you, s.penrod 
with a D at the end at autism-live.com. I do spell things out from time to time because we know that some of you are watching us on iTunes and we encourage you when you're on iTunes, you get to choose. Would you like to have the video and the sound or would you like to take just the sound and be listening to it in your car or when you're taking a walk, what a great thing to do. All right, uh, so I do like to remind you at the start of the show that we have lots of experts who are on the show. I'm not one of them. I'm not an expert in autism. I'm not even an expert in my kid who was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. Uh, he's now 16, by the way, and fabulous. He's remarkable. Uh, and mom is so proud of him. Can I just tell you how proud I am of that young man and who he is? Oh. Don't even get me started. Um, but in any case, I'm not an expert in autism. My credential to sit here is that I care deeply about you and the things that you want to know about. And when you write into me, I do my level best to see if I can find just something. We do like to know what the closest major city is when you write in so that I can help to maybe see what's available where you are. I wish it was a level playing field. I wish that folks who write to us from Pakistan had the same opportunity as the folks in New Jersey who have the same opportunity as here in Southern California. It just isn't so. Uh, we work towards that every day and hopefully someday we'll get there, but we are not there right now. So tell us the biggest major city when you're writing in to help us to know, okay, what might be a bit, and then I go on the hunt, right? Uh, maybe not immediate, but I go on the hunt. Be persistent, write in often, because we have a lot of people writing in now, and it is my greatest, greatest joy besides my kid, right? That people write in and sometimes when we're able to help them to get the thing they need, whew, that makes my day. Uh, but be persistent. Uh, sometimes when you write in the first time, it gets lost in the shuffle, right in two or three times. And I, I definitely notice, I go, hey, they've been, they've been trying several times. We've got to bump this to the top, right? Okay. Uh, we also, because it's Monday, we like to start off with something we fondly refer to as the jargon of the day. This is when we take on one word, one phrase, one acronym. We try to figure out what in the hey nani nani are these experts talking about and what does it have to do with us, right? Sometimes the words are just so crazy outside our, our understanding of the world. And then we look up in the dictionary online to see what the, what the word means, and it's not helpful to us at all, right? And I like to make fun of our definitions. So we give you a working definition, which helps you to have a key into it. Other times we have words, like today's, where it's kind of a mess because, look, we, we've all heard of the term mastery before. This is not news to us. Shannon, you got to explain to me what mastery is. Like, I can watch PBS and see somebody play the piano, and I understand what mastery is, right? What does this have to do with autism? Are we talking about just savants? No, we're talking about everybody. So let's take a look at our actual definition of mastery so we can scratch our heads and maybe make some fun of this. The point, uh, I think this is our, our, our working definition. Oh, but let's go. The point at which the child is said to have successfully acquired the target behavior determined by previously established criteria. Let's look and see what the working definition is and see if we've got them backwards. Oh no. Okay. When the child is independently demonstrating the desired skill at the desired level. All right. They were both pretty easy. There is a longer definition of mastery that is something that will make you want to throw your head 
like take it off your body and throw it down a flight of stairs. So here's the thing with mastery is that we, whenever we're going to teach something to somebody, we, we always need to be mindful when we're teaching them, how are we going to measure whether they learned it? How do we know when we can stop teaching that and move on to the next thing? And this is true of all teaching, whether you're teaching using ABA methods, which by the way, are the most effective teaching methods shown by research, um, but, or you're doing any other thing, right? I'm a former teacher. So um, best practice says that before you teach someone, you have to do an assessment of what they actually know. I know people skip by that all the time, but I love that. Let's see what they know first, right? Because that helps us to know where to begin teaching, right? But then we're going to teach them and then we have to have some sort of a thing that tells us whether or not they learned it. Now in school, a lot of times people give a test or an assessment as they like to call it. We, we give the pre-assessment and then we teach and then we give the post-assessment, right? And then we evaluate that and we decide whether we need to reteach, which is really what good teaching is. You test first, see where we are, you give instruction, you test again, then you reteach according to the test results and arrive at a place, you test again and you see, oh, they got it. They understand it. But if you don't understand for yourself before you teach, what is it going to look like when, they, when I'm done teaching and can move on to the next thing, you're going to find yourself unsure, do they know it or do they not know it? So before you teach anything, you set a criteria that says, if they can do this, this, and this, then that shows that they've mastered it. So if, for instance, you're a fifth grade teacher, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sorry, and you're going to teach the capitals, the state capitals, and you decide beforehand, okay, I'm going to decide that mastery for this is not that they know 100% of all the capitals, because otherwise I could be stuck teaching this for a long time, right? But I'm going to say to myself, you know, I'm going to be happy <clears throat> If my students, um, you know, I'm deciding what, what's pass-fail, right? So I, I might decide that an 80, I'm going to consider if they can get 80% of them, that that's going to, I'm going to call that mastery. It doesn't mean that they're perfect at it, but they know enough of them to go out into their lives and function, right? If it's a 76, I need to spend a little bit more time working on it. And if they get a 50, I'm going to call that a failure and i got to find new teaching techniques, right? And that's what we would do. Now notice um, that, you know, I'm setting this beforehand and then I teach the lesson and then I test and that informs what to do. Now, sometimes we are teaching a child and we set a mastery criteria at 80%. And let's say again, the state capitals. And I'm teaching the child and I see that the child really knows them. And if we're playing it as a board game, that the child completely knows it. But when it's a test and they've got to match them with the state, they don't have it, right? And then I want to look at it and go, oh, is it because it's the shape of the state that they don't have? Or is it that they have test anxiety? Or what is happening that it's not transferring from here to there? And then I've got to look at what the individual problem is. And you know what? It might force me to change my mastery cr criteria. I might go, okay, I want for this person to get an 80% on this kind of a test and a 70% on this kind of a test. And if they can do both of those things, I'm going to call it mastery. It isn't what I originally said, right? 
but I, I, got, I want to be individual about it because I don't want to be so rigid that I've got a kid who really knows them, but I am just keep forcing them to go through an anxiety-ridden process like um, a test. Or maybe that child um, is, is visual, and so they need the visual. Or maybe they're not visual, and the visual throws them off. I don't know. Each child is individual. But my point is sometimes you change the mastery criteria based on the child, okay? I think that's the hardest thing for people to understand about mastery. Now, let's move this over to the field of autism. So when we're doing ABA with someone who's on the autism spectrum and we decide that we're going to teach a lesson and we always want to know how we're going to get this child to generalize uh, at, the, at the end, right? But before that, we need to know what the mastery criteria is. So. A lot of times, sort of a generic sort of thing that people use for a lot of lessons is that they can do it 80% of the time, uh, two consecutive um, sessions with two different people, okay? Uh, that's sort of the generic, run of the mill. It's not going to apply for everything, right? But if I'm teaching someone to count to 10 and I've decided the mastery criteria is they can do it 80% of the time, but they have to do it 80% of the time across two different sessions with two different people. So, you know, uh, Javier comes and he's the, the therapist for the first lesson. He does um, the lesson with the child. And by the way, it would also say something about the number of trials. So 10 trials, they got to get it 80% of the time. So Javier sits down with the child and they they do the one counting from one to 10 and they do it 10 times and the child is able to do it eight of the 10 times. Great. We're, we're partway there, but that's one session with one person. Javier leaves and you know, the next person comes in and it's Rebecca. She's the therapist. She runs this program with the child and lo and behold, the child is able to do it, you know, eight out of 10 trials. Now they qual now they've mastered this lesson. And we go, woohoo, they mastered the lesson. We're going to move on with the next thing. Now we're going to count to 15. Um, and we would say that that child has mastered the lesson of counting from 1 to 10. We might find down the road that they really haven't because a week later, they aren't able to do it again with you know the third therapist who comes in. And then we find we have to go back and look why. Why did that happen? Reteach, assess again. And then sometimes we find that some of our kids are tricky because they're learning while they're sitting there doing the trials. So they get the first two wrong every single time, but then trial three through 10, they got right because they were reminded of the lesson in the first two trials. Well, if we start to see that happen, then we're going to change the mastery criteria and say they have to get the first two right. Because we're really looking at what is the point in which we go, mm, they've got this, now let's teach something else. We want to set the criteria beforehand. It's going to inform what we do. But if we see that it's not working, we have the ability to manipulate the variables. Does that make sense? I hope so. Because this is a very important concept and mastery and understanding mastery is really important to teaching of all kinds, but especially with ABA. It's important to know what the criteria is beforehand, but you don't let the tail wag the dog, right? You set that criteria, and a lot of times it's just going to work, right? And you'll be like, yeah, mastered, we're moving on to the next thing, right? But sometimes you're going to go, ah, I don't think the mastery criteria fits here. Okay, perfect example of when you don't use that sort of generic mastery criteria is when you're working on safety, right? Do we want a child to be able to get safety right eight out of ten times? Do, let's just say crossing the street. Is it okay if they're able to cross the street eight out of ten times in life? No. 
we need 100% compliance with that. They've got to have that 100% of the time, and, and they've got to be able to do it across multiple uh, people and multiple settings before we're, we're going to say that they've mastered this, right? Be because in life, you've got to be able to cross the street safely 100% of the time. And there are lots of lessons that are not going to fit into that generic 8 out of 10 across two sessions with two people. But just to give you an idea, mastery, and if we're mindful of mastery as we begin to teach and mindful of mastery as we're teaching, it will help us to truly get to the core of what mastery is, which is when the individual can do the lesson on their own. And mastery is on the way to generalization, which is when they can do not only what you taught them, but all the other things, all the examples of the times when you can't possibly teach all of them. So the child can master red, they can pick out the color red eight out of 10 times, two, you know, with 10 trials uh, across multiple settings, across multiple people, right? They've got red, right? But then when they're able to understand that something is red, even when it's light red or dark red or brick red, that's generalization. Whoa. That's where we want to be. Mastery first, generalization next. All right, that's our term for today. Moving on, we always have a question of the day. Our question today, are you ready for this? Dun, 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 dun. It is, what's your superpower? Kind of a play on mastery, right? Like, what are you good at? What's your superpower? I can tell you right now that my superpower is the gift of gab. I can talk. I really can. I, somebody the other day was saying to me about the, the fact that they were shy and had social anxiety, and I was like, oh, I know, me too. And they laughed out loud at me, like turned and laughed out loud at me. And I said, no, seriously, I am very shy and I have big social anxiety. And they, they stopped and put their hands up. They were like, Shannon, are you just funning with me now? I said, no, my shyness was so severe that when I was in fourth grade, my mother was like, what are we going to do? And the teacher said, sign her up. And my mother said, you know, she's very dramatic at home. <laughs> and she talks all the time at home, but we go out and I was just, mm, right. Um, and the teacher said, oh, you know, put her in a drama class and that'll take care of her. And of course it did. Um, and what I, what happened to me is that in those classes, I learned how to, even when you didn't feel like it, how to pretend that it was okay in the moment, right? Something that served me well through many different things. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why I'm, you know, that's my background, but it's also why I'm so always uh, a proponent for having our kids on the spectrum take drama classes. Temple Grandin said it's what helped her to be able to master situations in which she was uncomfortable because she could just pretend that she was somebody else for a minute and say, well, if I were a confident person, um, you know, showing these people the plans of this slaughterhouse that I built, how would I behave? And I'm going to behave that way, and they will assume that I'm confident, and I will get the job. And it worked, because it does work. So um, I, for years, I, I still am shy. But I know exactly what to do when I'm, I, and you'll see me if you're ever at a live event with me where I'm always like, oh gosh, I'm going to have to talk to people. And there's a moment where I go, okay, jump in, Shannon, you got to do this. And I will take charge and I will walk up to people and go, hi, I'm Shannon. And who are you? And it's so uncomfortable for me. Can I just tell you? But I know how to do it. 
and I know how to deal with the stress that that causes me um, to do it because somebody taught me how to do it. So, um, but that is my superpower is that I can talk. If nothing else, I can talk. <laughs> Don't necessarily ask me to put something together, right? Uh, I might burn whatever cookies we're making, but I can talk everybody down through the floor while I'm doing it. So there you go. What's your superpower and how do you use that for the good of, of all of mankind? Uh, write in and tell us because I know that you have a superpower and I want to know what it is. All right. Um, okay, moving on. We always have a topic of the week and I'm so excited. We've never done this topic before and I really want to talk about this because heaven knows I need it. And, but it's the gift of organization that the people that I know uh, that have the most success are people who uh, have found at least a pocket of organization and whatever the thing is that they want. You know, I, I, I am a, a little bit of a follower. I'm not a zealot, but I'm a little bit of a follower of Tony Robbins. And I remember a million years ago, he said something and I haven't been able to implement it in my life. But he said he realized that so much of his time was being sucked up with paperwork that somebody would put a piece of paper in front of him and he would go, oh, I, I really don't have the bandwidth for this now, so he'd put it over here. And then the pile would start, right? And then he would have to go back through. So he's already spent, you know, 10 seconds looking at it and putting it over here, right? And then he has to go through the pile and throw away things that no longer apply. And then he looks at it again and goes, oh, right, I got to put it over here to do this later. And, and then it's like, oh, where's that piece of paper? I don't know where it is. And you're looking through everything and finding everything to come back to the paper. And so he made a decision in his life that he wasn't ever going to hold a piece of paper in his hands more than once. So whatever, if he picks up a piece of paper, whatever needs to happen with this piece of paper needs to happen right now. I mean, I don't know about you, but that just makes my whole world tilt and I go, oh, I don't know if I could do that. But I can see why that would be beneficial to run your life that way. Um, if nothing else, being able to have a filing system to know where to come back and find it. If you saw my office right now, you would laugh hysterically because I have stacks of papers that I need to go through. But you know what? That drains everything. It drains time, drains your energy. Um, and, you know, time is all we have. Time is it. So the things that are the most important, it's best to find a way to be organized to begin with. And so I just want to talk to you for a minute today about autism and the paperwork that comes with autism. After we had already been three years on the, the autism roller coaster, right? Autism Speaks came out with their 100-day kits. And one and I was like, "Oh, thanks." And it's it's to get you through your first 100 days. And I really encourage you if you haven't gotten your 100-day kit yet from Autism Speaks, do it. They're free and they come in more languages than I can count, uh, which is really remarkable, right? But I eventually got my 100-day kit and one of the first things it said to do was invest in a really good scanner that a printer scanner and I was like well why would you need that and they said because every time you get documents from the school or from the doctor or whatever get into the habit of just taking them and get one that, that you can put in 30 pages at a time which is a little bit more expensive I gotta say um, and put them in there <clears throat> and scan those puppies into your computer go in and label them and and put them like have a file on your desktop that says autism 
and you know when you have a chance put them into individual folders like you know here's all the school stuff here's you know and maybe subcategories of here's IEP here's the legal stuff here's you know uh, assessments uh, whatever but to have it on your desktop so that when somebody asks you hey do you have your diagnosis paper that you go yeah I know exactly where that is click 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 and you can mail it to somebody I gotta say that is some of the best advice that there is going for somebody who's in the very beginning. And even if you're not in the very beginning, if you have time, and here's where it gets dicey, because once you get rolling, it's like, ah, where are all those papers? I'd like to go find them now and scan them in. And I gotta say, if you got the time for that, great. But a lot of us don't have the time for that, right? But if the scanner is someplace set up and working, and I know, already it's like I've lost a lot of us right if the scanner is there and set up and working um, start now with the stuff moving forward because it will serve you well by the way I would tell you to when you do your taxes have the go in another file on your desktop and have them because when you start applying for grants which I hope you will do you're gonna need your most recent tax form and it's just gonna serve you well to have the autism file and the tax file on your desktop. And I'm sure that there's, you know, have some sort of a service that backs that up so that if the computer dies, I don't know about all of that, but that's my husband's job, uh, which scares me, right? But it's important to have access to those files and, to, and every minute, when somebody asks you for those things, every minute counts, right? Those are the things where it could easily turn into a two-month thing, been there, done that, where it's like, oh yeah, no, I'll get you that paperwork, and then it doesn't happen. And that costs you time, it, it costs you money, it costs you progress. So the gift of organization, and if you just start with that, have the autism file and the tax file, I think you'll see that it's, it's gonna simplify so much of your life, right? Um, so much of your life. I know people who also um, print out their IEP and their BIP, which we're going to talk about all that in a minute, um, and put that in a, um, a clear plastic um, sheet protector and they attach magnets to it and stick it to the side of their refrigerator. And I really think that that's a good idea too. And I have a friend who did that for all of her teachers and gave it to all of her kids' teachers and so that they could stick it to the side of the file cabinet. I gotta say, it's a good idea because then they have it someplace too. What we see is a lot of time you put the money and the time in to do a really good IEP and a really good BIP, but if nobody knows where it is and nobody knows what's on it, how likely is it that we're gonna follow that, right? Um, so gift of organization. Then once you have these things working for you, then we can talk about your closet. <laughs> right? Um, and then we can talk about your garage. And then we can talk about the trunk of your car and all the other places. But if you just have the autism and the taxes for this week, whoo, you'll be cooking with gas. Gift of organization. It's a fabulous thing. All right. So today's show is a little bit different. Uh, we don't have a guest for you today. I'm your guest for today. And there's a talk that I do like once a year that is about autism in the classroom. This is a subject that I feel very, very strongly about having been a former teacher and my son is a student and he's been a student for many years and he's a junior in high school, but he's going on to college and already talking about where he might go to graduate school. I don't know what that bank we're robbing, but you, you know what I mean? 
Uh, so he's a student and I'm a, a former teacher and I believe that if you are at all passionate about education then you are always a student. So I am always a student and you are always a teacher and I hope to always be both a student and a teacher because the day I'm not learning and the day that I don't care about somebody learning more, I don't know, like unplug me, right? I don't know what that's about. So we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and talk about uh, ABA in a classroom. And, and we do this from the point of view of a teacher, but as we go through, I, 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 the reason why I do this for parents is if you don't understand what's happening in the classroom, how can you be helpful to the teacher, right? So the whole way we're going to do this from the point of view of a teacher, but we're going to be flipping it to show why this is important to a parent. Autism in the classroom, right after these messages. Stick with us. Welcome back. I'm just talking about my aches and pains, you guys. So welcome back. I want to talk about autism in the classroom today. And I was saying before the break that this uh, we do this about once a year. This is a subject that I'm really, really passionate about, having been a former teacher, always a student, always wanting people to learn, is, you know, what's wrong with our classrooms today in America? And a lot of what's wrong is that there's challenging behavior happening in the classroom and we're not teaching teachers how to deal with it. So I want to go through this PowerPoint really quickly as a former teacher and as a parent of an individual in the autism spectrum and I hope that there will be teachers who will watch who will go oh my gosh I get this now what a cool thing um, but I also want to be talking about and I want to talk from the, the teacher perspective but I then we'll flip it from time to time to talk to the parents because I think it's so important that if parents don't understand what teachers are facing in the classroom, that's when it all gets disconnected and breaks down, right? Because we go, well, I don't understand why the teacher can't do this, and I don't understand why I got this note, and it all, you know, we're not working as a team. So um, we, in order to educate, if you're going to educate in today's system, you, you can't just go in and be like, well, I'm here to teach, and I know all the teaching methods, so go, right? Because you got to deal with the challenging behavior that's happening first. And I know there are people who, who say, let's just expel those kids, and or let's move those kids and put them in a special ed program, and I think that is... First of all, really short-sighted, uh, that's people who are not in the classroom on a daily basis um, and who really care about those kiddos because we're going to see challenging behavior from kiddos who are super duper smart and if we could get this behavior under control and actually use it for educational purposes, we would get much further and these, these kids are our future. So we cannot throw anybody away. Okay, so Traven, and Traven's gonna be in control of my slides. So go ahead, Traven, onward and upward. Next slide, please. So um, there, was a, um, there was a documentary that was made that not that long ago that was called, I think, Searching for Superman. And it was about the, um, the, the entire education uh, process in the United States. And, and this sort of thought that we expect teachers to be superhuman. And, and often we will ask them, like, why can't you do that? And I just want to be here as a former teacher to say that teachers aren't, don't, they're not superheroes, right? They shouldn't have to be superheroes. And they certainly haven't had superhero training, right? So we have got to get realistic with our expectations about what a teacher can do and what a teacher can't do. Teachers are there to educate. They're not there to be policemen. They are not there, honestly, to change diapers. 
metaphorically or literally, right? That is not what their job is. They are there to teach. That's a big job, and there are many things that go hand in hand with teaching, but if we you know, we give, we give teachers a classroom with 42 kids. We don't have books for all of them, and we expect them to teach and educate and control the classroom at the same time. It's a tall order, and we got to get realistic about it. So go ahead to the next slide, Trayvon. So one of the things that I want to go over today is for us to be able to identify what the causes are of the challenging behavior that's getting in the way of of all the learning that we want to have. And we want to get to some basic strategies about what any teacher can do and what any parent can get really proficient in. We want to talk about some resources that can help you with your school system. And we want to give you something better than a cape, right? Because Edna Mole says no capes, right? Uh, nobody needs to be a superhero, but let's give tools. Uh, let's teach. Let's educate, right? Go ahead to the next slide. Uh, okay, so the first thing, the most important thing that we need to be cognizant of is the behavior does not, we want to put it into categories. We want, well, this is good behavior. This is bad behavior, right? Um, but behavior is all communication. And when we say, oh, well, this is good behavior and this is bad behavior, we're leaving out that that bad behavior is a form of communication that we can use to educate an individual. Uh, so we got to get rid of this stigma of the child equals the behavior. They don't, right? I have seen teachers in a classroom with a kid who's just snaking out and always a problem. And if we just go, well, the behavior is a problem, therefore the child is a problem, and we don't address the behavior and what the behavior is communicating, I'll just tell you what ends up happening to that child. That's a pipeline to dropping out, and we know statistically that is the pipeline to prison. It's literally called that. And I don't know about you, but I, first of all, I want to start with caring about that individual child. But how about we care about all of society? Because if we can break through to this child and make a difference, my goodness, you guys, how many, let, think about you, who you are, who is the teacher who made a difference for you, right? And I'm sure you can think of somebody, right? The teacher who believed in you, the teacher who wrote it out with you, the teacher who took the time, right? Um, be that person. Doesn't mean you have to be a superhero, but let's look at the behavior as separate from the child. Let's start to look at, because it's communication. Okay, go ahead, Traven. Uh, so look at all of these pictures of these kiddos here, because they're all behavior. And what is the behavior saying? I love the little baby who's clearly screaming about something, right? But all of that behavior that you're seeing there, they're communicating something. And if we get down to what they're communicating, then we can be productive, right? All right, move on to the next one. So uh, one of the principles of ABA, and ABA is considered the most effective teaching tool that there is, but one of the principles of ABA says that if you do something over and over and over again, it's because you're getting some sort of a reward for it. Go ahead and go to the next one. Uh, Dr. Phil says, what's your paycheck or what's your payoff? And that's really what it comes down to. So if you've got a kid who is having a tantrum on a daily basis in a classroom, they're doing it for a reason. It's not random. I know that especially with autism, people like to have this idea that, oh, well, it's just autism. It's just it's random behavior. I'm sorry. Science has shown us that is not the case. It just isn't. All of that behavior is communication and it's a means to an end. If I throw a tantrum, perfect example. Uh, one of the schools that my son was at early on, there was a kiddo who was in his class who, when whatever would happen in the classroom, he would just 
exit the classroom and run. Run, 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 run. Um, and not stop running. And the teacher who's trying to teach the class would have to get on the phone and call the office and say, this child has run. And so what they would do is uh, they would dispatch someone to go and run after the child. The, the, the whole campus is on lockdown, so he can't get out, right? But they would have to go run across the fields that they play in, obtain the child who was happy to come back with them when he was found. He never hid, right? But they would bring him back and they would bring him to the vice principal's office. And she would sit with him in the room and they would have, do I have a pencil? They would sit in her office and she would take pencils. This one doesn't have a good eraser on it, but they would do this for the next 10, 15 minutes. And they would bounce pencils together. <laughs> and my thing was I would walk by and I would see this and I would go, how's that working for you? because the next day he would escape again and they would go get him and they would come back. And I think the vice principal thought that this was going to be boring and that he was gonna hate doing it. Are you kidding me? He was sitting in a comfy chair with all of the attention on him with one of the big powerful people with a grin smacked on his face while he's bouncing pencils. He was, he had a payoff. It was a paycheck for him. Uh, what they eventually found was that he was doing it during math because the kid couldn't add, right? But so to get out of it, he'd run and they'd go get him and he would get to bounce pencils and he'd come back and he'd be like, oh, I guess I missed the math again today, right? He had a paycheck for it and the paycheck kept him coming back for more. We have to be careful about what the paycheck is because if we're feeding the paycheck, we're not helping. Go ahead to the next slide, Traven. So um, is, this a, is it a tool? We, what if we could pick the behaviors that we want a student to maintain and make them rewarding and make the behaviors that are challenging less rewarding so that they disappear? Because I got to tell you, if we were able to flip that equation and if we were to be able to reward this kid with a break that I was just talking about whenever he needed a break and we were able to teach him some math skills and reward him heavily every time he did some math, first of all, he'd be further along in his lessons than he was before and we would cut down on the amount of time, like that's unsafe having a kid running unsupervised across a field, right? And the vice principal would be available to do more things than bouncing a pencil, right? Win, 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 right? Um, so it's very important that we start to look at this and go, I know everybody gets all freaked out and they go, oh no, it's challenging behavior. What will we do? But you know what? It's sort of the keys to the kingdom because if you can crack the code, go on to the next slide, Trayvon. If you can crack the code, then we can figure out what's happening. So we use ABA, the Applied Behavior Analysis, and we use the ABCs of behavior. Go ahead to the next one. We talk about this all the time on the show. Uh, remember that when we can find the code, we can change a child's behavior, but first we have to change our own because somehow we're feeding into that paycheck. Go ahead to the next one. Uh, <laughs> will say that it's very important to realize that we have the serenity prayer here for you because um, there are some things you can't be in control of, right? So grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. 
we all, you know, I love Ileana Venzant. She goes, heal yourself, put your hands on, <laughs> heal yourself. There are some things you don't have control over. And I hear teachers all the time, well, the mom fed him, you know, a sugar cereal. Okay, but you don't have control over that. You have control over what happens in your classroom, but you don't have control over what happened outside the classroom, right? And you've got, you've got to, got to, got to get on that page with it because otherwise you'll waste half the day being upset about the sugar cereal. Go on to the next one, Traven. Okay, we're, we're talking about, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. There's the serenity, the courage, the wisdom. See, he asked me, did I need all the slides? And I said, yes, I need all of them. Okay, um, but here's the asterisk here is that it's absolutely essential to know the function of a behavior in order to effectively change uh, what it is. So you, and we're gonna get into how you figure out what the function of the behavior is. Um, but you can't, what I see teachers make the mistake of all the time and parents, this is when you get mad, is when they decide on an intervention without knowing what's happening. That's why you've gotta know what the communication is first and you have to figure out what the function of the behavior is. The function of the behavior is the paycheck. And if you don't know what the paycheck is, like for that kiddo who was bouncing the pencils, they thought the function of the behavior was that he was bored and they thought they would give him something more boring. Well, I'll tell you, here's a test to see whether it's working or not. If it's working, he won't keep doing it forevermore. He might do it a little bit extra in the beginning, and we'll talk about that in a second, but it'll eventually stop. It didn't. It kept on happening. Okay, go on to the next slide. Uh, I'm hoping, oh, I don't, we, we, we lost a slide about the ABCs. So here, let me leave it there, but let's just talk about this. So the ABCs of behavior, is, so there's three things that happen on a timeline every time that there's a behavior. There's something happens, and that's the antecedent. Then we have the behavior, and then there is the consequence for the behavior. Watch your life. This happens to all of us in a classroom, at a bank, in a swimming pool, in your bathtub. Something happens, there's a behavior, and then there's a consequence for the behavior. You're sitting in the bathtub, and the bathtub, the water cools off, right? You start to feel cold. So you reach over and you turn on the knob, right, to, to pour the water. So the antecedent was you felt cold, the behavior was you turned on the water to feel hot, and the consequence was the water in the bathtub heated up. It's a simple equation. A stands for antecedent, B is the behavior, and C is the consequence. So it's just the ABCs of behavior. And every single time there's a behavior that happens over and over again, it's because something is happening antecedent that's leading to it, and there's a consequence that's paying it off, right? So we don't have much control over behavior. And teachers, we all, and parents, we all think we have control over the behavior, mana. But you have control over the antecedent a lot of the time. And sometimes you have control over the, the consequence. That, this is where we need to apply the serenity prayer because sometimes you don't have control over the antecedent, sometimes you don't have control over the consequence. Okay, but there are four main reasons why a kid in a classroom will act out. And, and exhibit challenging behavior. And if you can just, I call these the four usual suspects. And if you can memorize these four usual suspects and start to ask yourself, what, why do I think this child was engaged in this behavior? And there's some ways that you can check. But number one is attention. Everybody take a breath. In a classroom, I, as a teacher, I always thought of my kiddos as these buckets, these beautiful, beautiful buckets. And if there wasn't enough attention in the bucket, the bucket goes crazy, right? And some kids have a big bucket and some kids have a little bucket, right? You give them a little bit of attention and they're 
happy. They're like on task and they're doing whatever. Other kids, it's like the bucket is this ginormous well and you keep putting attention into it and it feels like you never get to the top, but you can, you really, really can. And remember that a kiddo who needs all, everybody needs attention, by the way, everybody, just we need different and varying amounts. And the kiddo who needs lots of attention will engage in behavior to get negative attention because it's all attention. So they go, well, no, I, people say all the time, well, it's not attention because he does things and he gets in trouble for it. That's attention. <laughs> it is. So we got to be careful about that. Uh, number two is access to activities or items or a person, right? They want access to something. I want the ball. I want to sit in, uh, near the teacher. I, you know, I want to have this pen. And so they engage in behavior to get, gain access to that someone, something, or or someplace, right? Uh, escape, that they want to get out of doing something uh, because it's aversive to them. So they will do all kinds of things. My son used to, didn't want to do his homework, so he'd be sitting there doing his homework and he would just, with his pencil, and then he'd be like, oh, I got to go get my pencil. And then he would crawl all over underneath the desk and it would take him five minutes to crawl back up. And then it's like, oh, I don't have, a oh, okay, you gave me another pencil. Well, he just got a break is what happened. That's a break. That's escape maintained. And we were letting him, so he kept doing it until we stopped letting him have the break there and gave him breaks at other time. Yeah. And then the last one is the hardest one. It's when something is automatically reinforcing. There's some sort of a paycheck on the inside. So, you know, kids who chew on things or they rock, there's a paycheck on the inside that is useful to them. Some kids laugh, some kids hit themselves, right? There is a paycheck for them. I know it doesn't seem like it, but when you hit yourself on the head, if you have a headache, it alleviates the headache for just a second, right? So there is a paycheck for all those things. The kids who spit on their hands and wipe it all over the desk or, or you know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that make things automatically reinforcing, but it's something that's happening on the inside. It's hard to diagnose what it is, um, but it's possible. Okay, so on to the next slide where I think we go into these more depth. All right, so take the example of the car. Your car is broken. You're down, you know, it's you're broken down by the side of the road and you open up the hood. And if you're like me and you don't know much about cars, you open up the hood and you go, hmm. And you call a what? A mechanic. Because you're not a car specialist. I know it's confusing with our kiddos because uh, if you're a teacher, you're an expert on, on being in the classroom, right? But you're probably not an expert on behavior. And if you're a parent, you're like, well, I'm an expert in my kiddo, but are you an expert in behavior? And you might be. I sure wasn't as a teacher or as a parent an expert in behavior. So if you have access to, it's always better to call a mechanic. And for behavior, the person that you want to call is a BCBA. Go ahead and go to the next slide, Traven. Um, when you call the BCBA, then they're going to be able to help you figure out what the function of the behavior is. But for a minute, let's play sleuth. Let's have the example that in the classroom, and we're trying to figure out what the function of the behavior is. So here's what's happening. And we always want to look at it and go, what's happening? Johnny is biting Miguel. So tell me, what do you think the function of the behavior is? Do you think it's attention? Do you think it's gaining access to something? Is it escape? Or is it automatically reinforcing? Well, you know what? With this information, I got to tell you, we don't really know. And if we jump to a conclusion and go, oh, I know, I'm going to start ripping the carburetor out of this puppy, 
because I'm assuming what it is. Your mechanic would never do that, by the way. Your, your mechanic would be like, let me test drive it and see when this happens. I'm going to take data about this. And then I'm going to come back with a conclusion based on the data. That's what a BCBA would do. So, all right, move on to the next slide here, Traven. So uh, this is why it's not okay to guess, especially when we're, we're seeing this behavior and it's happening more than once. Because if you guess, you have the potential of making it worse. The kiddo who was running because he wanted to escape math, his paycheck was that he got to escape math longer, and so he did it more often. Well, you know, the only person that was really, I mean, I would say the people were harmed because he missed all that math, and there were things that the vice principal could have been doing that would have helped all, the whole school, right? But at least no one was physically injured, and there are times when if you guess, somebody can get physically in, injured. So we try not to guess. Go on to the next slide. We call the mechanic, and the mechanic is the uh, for, uh, for behavior is uh, a BCBA, and they come in and they do a functional behavior assessment and they look at it and go, what is the paycheck? All right, go on to the next slide. Um, so for one instance, we were looking at Johnny and Miguel. In this FBA, the functional behavior assessment, it says Johnny is biting other children and toys on a regular basis. His mother reports that he started, this started after he started taking methyl B12 shots. There's also been a recent spike in Johnny's progress in speech. So let me ask you, you were a sleuth and you went in and you determined all these things. What do you think the function is? Is it attention? Is it escape? Is it gaining access to someone or something? Or is it automatic reinforcing the self-reinforcing? What do you think? Go ahead to the next slide and reveal. It's self-reinforcing. Some kids have a, a biting reflex and we see that Johnny is likely biting because it feels good. His mouth itches and biting makes it feel better. So for a behavior intervention plan, uh, we're gonna give him a biting ring so that he's allowed to bite in class. It's a short-term intervention until the itching stops. And our clue here was that he had started methyl B12 shots, which sometimes makes our kids itchy. It reconnects the nerves in their mouth, which helps them to speak. But you will see a spike in biting sometimes with some kids after they start a methyl B12 shot. So the BIP, they've got him. He's, we, we always want to make sure that we give a replacement behavior that's more socially acceptable. So... If, you know, he's got something to bite, we've determined that he really physically needs to bite. And just telling him don't bite and punishing him for it is not going to help anybody, least of all Miguel, right? So uh, we give him the biting thing and, and slowly we will fade that when he stops to have the symptoms in a couple of weeks. All right, so, but what if that, we didn't find that in the, in the FBA. Go ahead and head to the next one. So in this instance, Johnny only bites Miguel and only when Miguel is playing with a playground ball. When Johnny bites Miguel, Miguel drops the ball and runs away, leaving Johnny to play with the ball. What's the function of the behavior? In this instance, we see that it's clearly gaining access to something because what he wants is the ball. And what this little guy has learned, go ahead to the next one. Uh, what he's learned is if I bite him, he drops the ball and I get the ball for at least a couple of seconds. And you know what? If you don't know this, you might go, well, no, he only got the ball for a second because then we took him took it away from him and we punished him and he could have had the ball for a whole hour during the playground but he didn't but we're assigning values to a little kid that may not have them so go ahead full screen that for me he's learned that when he bites miguel he gets the ball so for the bip he's only given access 
to the ball when he correctly asks for it and he's gone a certain amount of time without biting. Initially, it may only be a couple of seconds. Over time, the length is made longer. He is also not given close access to Miguel while Miguel is playing with the ball. Because we want to make sure that we're not setting up a circumstance when he's going to fail. We want to make sure that Miguel is safe, right? And we're going to properly teach Johnny how to request the ball, and we're going to give it to him as long as, and in the beginning, it's going to be he went one second without biting, you get the ball. Then we're going to make that two seconds and three seconds, and eventually it's going to be, you know, that he doesn't bite anybody ever again. All right, that's one scenario. Go on to the next one, Traven. So let's say that for this one uh, in the FBA, remember that's the functional behavior assessment, Johnny bites Miguel when Miguel is working quietly. When he bites, the teacher comes over and gives Johnny a lecture about biting. Sometimes he's given a timeout in the corner of the room, and while in timeout, the other kid, students look at him and giggle at Johnny and they point at him. So what's the function of the behavior? In this instance, it's attention. And I gotta tell you, more often than not, it's attention, especially in the classroom. Kids do things to get attention. So let's go on to our, uh, so it's attention. Go ahead, full screen it for me there, Trayvon. Uh, he gets attention from the teacher and from the other students. He gets special attention by being put in a different area of the room. And I know everybody goes, well, that's a punishment. Doesn't matter. He got attention. So for the BIP, the teacher attempts to give Johnny, it's called a, a, a schedule, a schedule of, uh, uh, reinforcement. So uh, they're going to give him more attention all the time. They're going to give him a job to do. They're going to praise him all the time and he's, he's going to be taught how to appropriately gain the attention and he's going to get rewarded every time he does it. And in the meantime, he, they're not going to allow him to be close to Miguel and if he bites, he's given little to no attention. Instead, the attention is given to the person he bit. Oh my gosh, this is so hard because remember the serenity prayer? You can't get a room full of students to ignore a behavior when somebody bites somebody, right? But if we've determined that it's attention, what we want to do is give all the attention to the victim and be like, oh my gosh, I am so sorry that you, you have been injured. Come and sit with me. All the attention that the child would have wanted, right? But we can't just do that. we got to teach them the right things to do. And we really want to praise this child every time they're doing anything that's right and fill that bucket. Boy, you know, these are the kids, i got to be honest with you, that I love. Um, because once you give them the attention, man, they fly. And, you know, anytime that I'm doing something in a classroom, even now, if somebody is, is like, you know, talking or whatever, I'll be like, hi, can you help me? I need an assistant. Come here. Look at how tall you are. Look at, you're so fabulous. I need you to pass these papers out. You're doing that so well. Now they don't have time to disrupt my class. And they're like, hey, I like her. And this is going well for me because they're feeding on attention. You see what I'm saying? But we, we must put all of these things into place. Okay, so you can guess this last one. We're running out of time. So let's take a look. Uh, and remember, attention doesn't have to be positive to be rewarding. Go on to the next one because we're going to get to escape. You're going to know what it is. It's the fourth one, right? So go ahead, full screen it for me, Traven. So Johnny bites Miguel every day during the daily math quiz. After he bites Miguel, Johnny is given a timeout. He is sent to sit in the corner and is not able to finish the math quiz. What's the function of the behavior? You already know because I gave you the example before. It's escape. Go on to the next one, Traven. So by biting Miguel, Johnny is given an opportunity to escape the math quiz. So for the BIP, one of the first things that we need to do is 
get him removed so that there's nobody that he can bite. He's not close enough to be able um, to move. We've got to be able to give Johnny, though, the ability to request breaks. This is so important. Whether he's verbal or nonverbal, he has to be able to point to something. And in the beginning, during this intervention, anytime he asks for it, we need to give him the break because we're trying to separate out the need to bite and we're trying to starve it off from it, it, you know, it was giving him a break before. But in the horrible event that we mess up and he does bite someone, he cannot be allowed to take a break right then. He has to finish the math test. Maybe we have to move his desk directly next to the teacher and we are going to see some behavior because he's been used to getting a break when he bites. So on this one, we're gonna be all about changing the antecedent, right? Giving him breaks whenever we can. Um, and teaching him the math skills so that he doesn't feel like he needs to take a break. Go on to the next one, Trayvon. Um, we can do all of these things, but we go back to the car. If we have the mechanic come in and get the function for us, we are going to be more likely to be successful. Go ahead, on to the next one. Uh, so do you really need the BCBA? I don't know. Do you really need the mechanic? I, the, the more... Sometimes, I mean, we, we pared it down and made it seem really simple, but sometimes something starts out as attention, but it goes on to be escape. And the example we gave you where the, where the boy um, did it for attention and he gets sent to the corner and everybody's giggling and he's got attention, but he also got a break too. And so he might learn, oh, look, I get attention and a break. And then we've got two things. It's much better to have somebody help you with, um, to know what the... Uh, intervention is right because it's hard it's hard enough to be a teacher you've got to have eyes on so I said that in the beginning that we were going to go back and, and talk to parents about this so for parents when when the note comes home from the school and they say oh well you know Miguel did this in school bah, 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 and you go what am I supposed to do you know what you're supposed to do ask what happened right beforehand and what was the consequence that you gave and ask for an IEP meeting and go in and sit down and talk this through with your teacher and say okay so can we have a BCBA on the case ask for them to come to the IEP meeting and say I asked what the before was and they'll go, oh, this parent is so smart, right? I asked what the before was and the teacher said they were, you know, going out to recess. And, and then, you know, the consequence for it was he didn't have to go to recess. Well, maybe he doesn't like recess because some kids don't. Recess is where you get bullied for some kids, right? But the BCBA will start to look at that and ask more questions. Don't, as a parent, just let behavior in the classroom go. It's communication. Your kiddo is trying to tell that teacher, I need something. Let's figure out what the something is and let's give it to them in a different way that's productive, right? That's really what we want to do in the classroom. And by the way, if you have the BCBA, they will put a behavior intervention into, uh, into place that will take care of the antecedent, find a replacement behavior, find a way to teach the child a better strategy and have a more effective consequence that actually fits this circumstance and doesn't feed whatever the function of the behavior is. It's kind of a grand thing. And when you see it work in a classroom, I have, I have, and it is a thing of beauty. I, I will, I'll tell you, I didn't have a child with autism when I was working in the classroom, uh, but I was constantly, I just, I love to teach, but when you have the challenging behavior, you don't get to, right? And so I was constantly asking experts and going to seminars and webinars about until somebody introduced me to all of this. 
And well before I knew that it was an ABA construct, and I was like, oh, because most of my kids, attention was the problem. And I got very good at that particular aspect. Um, you know, I still have a long way to go on some of the other ones because the automatic reinforcing is the hardest one, especially if you're trying to take care of a big classroom full of people. I mean, what I taught uh, college and then I went and taught junior high and high school. When I was teaching college, sometimes I had 150 students in my class. And one student can throw an entire lecture hall off if they choose to, right? Um, so attention, I, I got very good at the attention thing. But as a parent, it also prepared me to be able to go in and talk to the teacher. And when you say to them, okay, all right, I hear what you're saying, that my child is behaving this way, but why? What's happening right before? Did you just ask him to do something? Had you just come from something? Was it right after lunch? Did you, know, did you just rotate centers? What was happening right before? The sad part is, is that a lot of times teachers aren't going to know because they don't have eyes in the back of their head and they can't watch everybody 100% of the time. But if you see that happening time and time again, and if you're on the record asking the teacher what happened and the teacher's like, I don't know, I didn't see it, that gives you more fodder to ask for a one-on-one -on -one aid. It just does. So I hope all of this is helpful to all of you because um, we can address these challenging behaviors. And, and I mentioned with attention, boy, it's, all, it's almost immediate. If we get them on a, 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 a scheduled reinforcer where they get attention on a regular basis, teachers kind of hate this in the beginning because it's like, oh, it's just one more thing for me to do. But literally, I have done the thing where you set the timer so your watch just vibrates every 60 seconds and you give praise to the kiddo. And in the beginning, 60 seconds might be, you know, got to do it sooner. But you go, hey, I like what you're doing over there, Billy. That's you're doing a good job, right? And then you're back to teaching. And then 60 seconds later, everybody look at how great Billy's doing. And by the way, you give it to other people too. It will up everybody's performance in the classroom. And then you set it for, you know, 90 seconds. And you see if the child can hold for 90 seconds. And you'll find yourself in a month at being at like 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes, you have to praise them. And then by the end of the school year, you know, you can praise them once a day and their bucket is full. Their bucket is full and it builds trust. And I gotta say, it's, it's, it is a remarkable difference. You will get more done. And you'll change that kiddo's life. Woo, it's good stuff, really good stuff. All right, we're out of time, I think. Um, but uh, I wanted to say a couple of things. Hey, happy birthday to Dr. Seuss today. I know a lot's happening educationally and it's uh, National Read Across America Day. So we're really thrilled to be here with you. And we got a great uh, set of guests with us this week. So uh, on tomorrow, we've got a best of episode that we're gonna be showing to you on Wednesday. We think that we have Dr. Doreen Grampuchet. I'll let you know on Wednesday. On Thursday, Love this guest. And for the first time, he's bringing his mother. It's about time. Larry Hauser is going to be with us. He's from uh, Fullerton Cares, and they're getting ready for their Mardi Gras for autism. It's happening on April 4th. Oh, such a great event. But uh, he's going to bring his mother with him, and she is an amazing tour de force, this woman. She can cook. She, like, runs that family. It's What a beautiful family they have. So uh, Fullerton Cares, uh, Larry Hauser and his mother on Thursday. You're not going to miss it. And then Friday, it's Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy, and Nancy Osbaugh-Jackson will be joining me. Uh, Trayvon, do we have time or are we out? 
we're out of time. So I thank you all for being here. Please write into us. We love to hear your comments. We'll be back tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me. Bye-bye for now.